Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. This is Mitchell Davis, host of Taste Matters. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. It's Sunday. You're listening to The Main Course. I'm your host, Patrick Martins. We are broadcasting out of Roberta's Restaurant at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And uh, we have a great show coming up. Uh, We have a couple guests. Our first guest is Chef John Sharp, who is the chef of the Turquoise Room. And uh, he is uh, the Turquoise Room is part of a fantastic hotel, really one of the best, most interesting hotels in the country for sure, called La Posada. So we're going to talk to him about his uh, his work there and his work with the Navajo Nation and uh, the state of U.S. and English food. So stay tuned for that. And we're also going to have Michael Sullivan, the head butcher of Blackberry Farm in Tennessee. Um, that is a very well-renowned place. People like presidents and prime ministers go there so it'll be really interesting to get a lens into what is happening with michael but uh also big news is like in the old days we have jack insley in the studio hey jack it's been a long time since i've done your show i know i know well uh, it is uh, always an honor to have someone high powered like you come and do uh you know the engineering and editing for a measly like 12th or 13th best show on the network but um thanks so much for coming now you just got back from la coachella right that's Uh, right tell us about that and you met nick andrew tell us about that i was at coachella to do the outstanding in the field dinners there um so that was really interesting they've got a cool team and then i went to the dolce vita mansion where nick anderer and his uh his chef joe were there cooking for all the people at the mansion so it was crazy. It was like 105 degrees in the middle of the desert. Um, pretty insane. So I got a chance to interview him for a quick second, and he told us about a new restaurant. So should I play the tape? Yeah, let's hear the clip. I'm Nick Anderer, executive chef of Mayalino Restaurant in New York City. So I got Joe Tarasco, my executive sous chef. He's actually going to be the chef de cuisine, um, the opening chef de cuisine of our next restaurant venture. We're opening up another casual Italian spot, partnered with the King & Grove Hotel guys, 29th Street between uh, Park and Madison, set to open uh, late this summer. It's going to be another Roman-style place, but doing different kinds of food. We're going to do a lot of things over wood-burning grills. Everything's going to be cooked on wood. I just like cooking on wood, man. We're doing it right now today. You know, everything open, open fire, open grill. It's just... It's, it's a great way to cook, to challenge yourself to not use gas or anything else. I think it's... Aside from the you know the flavor that you get off of wood, it's just there's something just fun about cooking over wood. You know, I, I know how to do one kind of food well, and it's Italian food. And so like we're going to be doing some riff on Italian food, very Roman influenced. Um, I can tell you that there will be some pizzas involved, but that's not the whole menu. 
There you go. Well, that's very interesting. You know, I met with Nick. I did the staff training there a few weeks ago, and he was telling me that not only is it wood, but uh, it's a very, they had to build like something like 20-story chimney. So for the all the smoke to go out. So, I mean, they're investing a tremendous amount into this wood concept. And the funny thing is he doesn't even really have a place to practice this food because there's not that many wood fires, you know, to even practice in. So he's going to really be doing this a lot on the fly. Trial by fire. And you know, Jack, how the New York Times, when they come to review a place, they come when it's only been open for a few days. So right. uh, he's going to have a lot of... Uh, testing to do in a short amount of time well best of luck to him his food was awesome at the mansion i mean you know as always well jack i do hope you and your girl get to go to uh la posada in winslow arizona which is of course sung about in an eagle song but uh, there is this very famous hotel it is immense i mean it looks like the hotel from the shining in terms of size and uh, i'll let john sharp uh, tell me more about it but i believe it was part of a railroad uh, program and this was one of the big hotels that uh, people would stop on uh, during trips across large stretches of the country. But uh, it is a fascinating place. And anyway, we are honored to have John calling in from Winslow. John, are you with us? Yes, Patrick. I'm right here. How are you this morning? Oh, very oh, nice. This afternoon, your time. Yes, exactly. Good afternoon. Uh, I am uh, one sake into the day and very excited to have you. Your biography is very impressive. Um, uh, let's just fast fire, rapid fire through some of this, but it was too interesting. So you grew up in a port town of northeast England. Mm, yes, I'm originally born in the northeast of England in a little town called Hartlepool. Um, I grew up in the northeast, uh, son of coal miners. Uh, my culinary background as a young child was quite deprived, as was my whole childhood in those days. It was an impoverished part of England with close to 30% unemployment when I left school in the early 60s and went on to be a, a young chef. I always knew I wanted to be a chef, and I started my apprenticeship training uh, at the age of 16 and uh, stayed in England for almost five years, moved on um, to Switzerland uh, and uh, trained in Switzerland, went to school there, um, as well as doing school in England in the 60s before I left. In those days when you were an apprentice chef, you also had to go to a trade college and learn your craft um, at school as well. So I did all of that, went back to England for a short while, worked all over the continent uh, cooking in the 60s as a, a young punk chef, and, um, and then uh, came to America in the early 70s. Uh, and all these posh hotels in Los Angeles. I mean, you were at the uh, Beverly yes, Wilshire. My first job, my first job in Los... In, actually, my first job in Los Angeles was as a part-time cook working at a very famous restaurant called the bistro it was owned by a gentleman called kurt nicholas at the time and mm -hmm. the dining room manager was an irish friend of mine um who went on to open a very famous restaurant in los angeles also his name was jimmy murphy and it was actually jimmy that picked me up at the airport when i first flew into los angeles mm -hmm. and um i i did a couple of private parties there the chef there was swiss and he was a friend of uh one of my mentors in Switzerland, and they used me as a, as a part-time cook while they were waiting to hire me in the interim. I was hired at the 
Beverly Wilshire, where I eventually became sous chef and banquet chef there in, in the early 70s before moving on and but then you I eventually went on, opened my first place in Beverly Hills in 77. But uh, you went on to work for the people that invented the mimosa, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, was the first uh, place you opened, uh, that's by the way, Harry's Bar. Um, right. And uh, then were you talking about the Rangoon, Rock, uh, Rangoon Racket Club? Is that the place right. you opened? I, I opened uh, Harry's Bar, an American grill in Century City for what was then um, two gentlemen, Larry Mandel, who has a very famous food background. His family were the founders of Superior Coffee in San Francisco. And also Jerry Magnan, who was the son of I. Magnan, which is a very famous fashion uh, department store in San Francisco earlier. And they had a restaurant group, and we had uh, Harry's Bar and American Grill in Century City, the Greenhouse, the... Anyway, a number of restaurants open MacArthur Park in San Francisco. But, yeah, we did Harry's Bar, and then uh, I went on and uh, with um, a very interesting man, Manny Zwaf, I opened uh, the Rangoon Racket Club in Beverly Hills, and that was quite an interesting experience, a wonderful little place. And uh, that was my first time to step into the front of the house. The deal I made there was to uh, help Manny get the restaurant open, and we had a chef de cuisine there who was a, a, a Belgian gentleman who was a great chef but spoke very little English. So Manny and I were the translators. I, I speak French and, and German and English. And anyway, translated for, for the chef and went on eventually to run the front of the house. And uh, that helped me make my transition into uh, an owner. And I, I left there to open my own restaurant in Beverly Hills in 77 called Mirage with an investor and then, you know, went on from there. And now I'm in Winslow, Arizona Very uh, on my ninth restaurant. Uh, now, this is not just a regular restaurant. You opened the Turquoise Room. So could you just yes. tell our yeah, client? Tell, tell everyone a little bit about La Posada yes. Winslow. Now, some of you may have heard the term the Fred Harvey Company. Uh, Fred Harvey, like myself, was also English, came to the Americas in the 1860s. And to give you the short version of the history, he was the first person ever to have multiple restaurants and multiple hotels. And he made a deal with the Etchison, Topeka, Kansas, Santa Fe Railway in the 1860s to provide food at one of their early Hotels. In those days, the railroad companies owned all the land. They were blessed with being given all this land by the federal government. So they built these hotels. And anyway, Fred Harvey took over the first one in Leavenworth, Kansas. It was a huge success. He went on eventually to own hotels and provide all the catering services. This is now in the 1880s, 1890s, early part of the 1900s all the way from the Dearborn Station in Chicago, all the way through to Los Angeles, up to San Francisco. Uh, how, many, uh, Canyon. How, how many hotels were along this line and in what increments? I mean, this was each night people would stop the train at these hotels. And by the way, at La Posada, the train literally comes through the room practically. I mean, you yes, are... it stops uh, directly in front of the hotel. Yeah. In those days, in the early days of the railroad, there was no food in the 1800s actually on the trains, and the trains needed to refuel. They needed water, wood, and or coal. 
So they stopped every 100 miles. So okay. the Santa Fe built hotel. So everybody, the train stopped for about 20 minutes. They, they ate, the trains were refueled, and then they went on again. And also the big thing that Santa Fe did that Fred Harvey was very, very uh, critical part of this was in developing what was called the Indian lands. It was bringing people out in the late 1800s, early 1900s, into the West so they could see how the Native Americans lived. And Winslow was one of the first stops on that route. In those days, there was an old wooden hotel there. But anyway, they came out, they got off the train, they stayed at the Fred Harvey Hotels, they ate there, then they took the limousines up to the Indian lands to see the Hopis, the Navajos, and also to visit the Grand Canyon. In those days, there was no train line up at the Grand Canyon. Anyway, if we fast forward to 1930, La Posada was built in Winslow uh, and designed by a lady who is considered to be the first great American female architect. Now, this was 1930. Mary Jane Coulter had been working for the Santa Fe since the early part of the 1900s as a designer slash architect. Now, didn't she, she a, also do some government buildings or some work in Washington somehow? Yes, she did, and she is also the one that is uh, given the greatest amount of credit for the wonderful buildings uh, at the Grand Canyon, and that was, those were also the, the watchtower and um, Bright Angel and so on. She designed those at the Grand Canyon. But La Posada was the, she was also involved in the redesigning of um, uh, the uh, hotel in, in Santa Fe. But her biggest job was the building of this hotel, La Posada, in 1929 as, the, as a standalone concrete building in the heart of the desert. And, and how many rooms? Uh, we have 53 rooms. The entire property is 65,000 square feet, uh, not including a full basement. And this was built in the late 20s, uh, opened 1930. It closed in 1957 due to the demise of the highway and the railway system. You mean then, when they built the highway, used to run right through Winslow, and then they well, moved the highway Winslow, a few miles yeah. away? Correct. The, the, the rail... The railroad is on one side of the hotel, on the south side of the hotel, and Route 66 is on the north side of the hotel. Mm -hmm. So uh, the hotel closed. It was used as railway offices. Then in 1997, uh, our friends, my wife and I's friends, Alan and Tina um, Affelt, came up here, and uh, they started the restoration of the building, which is a whole other story. We came in 2000, and uh, we took on the space that was part of the dining facility uh, originally, and we helped redesign, and then all of that was rebuilt, and we have owned and operated the restaurant now for 14 years in a town where people thought we had really lost our marbles when we got there because there's not that much in Winslow except this magnificent building. In, in and, large part because the highway moved. So what, what overcame Highway 66? What is it, Highway 80? No, what is it, 90? 40, I-40. I-40 was built, yes. And then um, no, a lot of the small towns along Route 66 uh, fell into despair, if you will, because there was no foot traffic anymore. Anyway, you know, moving along to what we did when we came in 
in 2014, I had owned some restaurants in Newport Beach, Laguna Beach, Costa Mesa, Santa Ana, California, sold out of the group. I'd had it with the big city. I didn't feel I was a hands-on chef restaurateur anymore. I felt more like a bloody executive and didn't know what the hell, you know, the food scene was all about anymore. You know, I was too busy chasing my own tail. So um, I knew I wanted to... to get away from it. Sorry, Patrick? Well, I was going to say, you got away, but uh, you didn't, uh, just to contextualize also for our listeners, I mean, you did not come and superimpose an English or a San Diego cuisine on La Posada. You actually put tremendous effort to embracing local traditions and partnering with local farms. So talk about that. I mean, how is the local region, the Tohono O'odham, the Navajo Nation, uh, you know, with their sheep, how have you worked to integrate? integrate an integrated uh, restaurant versus uh, an American one uh, just right. forced in. Right. Well, well, what happened when I arrived in Windsor, I mean, when I first looked at the concept and the, the whole property, I thought, you know, this would be a magnificent opportunity for me to take Native American cookery to another level. I had already owned a restaurant inside of the Bowers Museum in Santa Ana and over a number of years had done a lot of Native American cooking. I also owned a southwestern restaurant called Kachina in Laguna Beach, which was very popular in the 80s and 90s. And anyway, getting to Winslow, I realized I was surrounded by all these amazing tribal lands with an amazing heritage of foods. And when I arrived, I knew no one here. And then miraculously, a, uh, a mutual friend of ours showed up, Gary Nabhan, who was at the time the uh, dean and the founder of the Center for Sustainable Environments at NAU, which is the museum at Flagstaff, which is 57 miles west of La Posada. And Gary and I started to talk. He was fascinated with the kind of cooking I was already doing and really enjoyed it. And then he introduced me to the Toda Odom Nation. To uh, I started using the tepary beans from them very early on. He took me up to Hopi. I started to uh, cultivate a relationship with the Hopi growers, with ladies who make piki bread for me every week. And then also uh, he was in the early stages then of the Navajo Churro Lamb Project, which has become my, if you will, cause celeb and has become um, a very, very important, integral part of the food that I cook on a daily basis. This now, correct sheep, me. I will, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it is the first domesticated animal in the Americas, this, this sheep, right? Correct. Yes, it is. Yes, this, this sheep was brought to the Americas in the 1600s. Some people believe even as early as 1500s. Um, to uh, the Americas, to what is now Mexico, to what is now New Mexico. And this sheep um, is a very, very hearty little breed that is um, able to exist in a very harsh environment. And this was the sheep that led to the great Navajo weaving. The weaving of the rugs of the Navajo Nation was originally all done with churro wool. And fortunately, and I won't go into the details of this, but... This little breed of sheep, which at one point numbered some two million, eventually was whittled down to just a few hundred. Because of the war with the government, with the native tribes. 
Right, and, that's correct. And also these sheep uh, in a woman's empowerment kind of category, I mean, these sheep, if I recall, were worked by women and owned by the women as well. That is correct. In fact, two of my shepherds, uh, both of them are ladies. Um, I have male shepherds, but I have two female shepherds. They're both very accomplished weavers, and I buy the whole animals direct from them every year from their flocks. Um, along with, um, I have another provider who um, was also very, whose family was also instrumental. The Spanish who settled in New Mexico were also extremely important in keeping this breed alive. And Molly and Antonio Manzanares in New Mexico run a flock of sheep. They own a company called Shepherd of Lamb, which provides all the farmers' market lamb for. Santa Fe, Taos, and Albuquerque, and they run some churros for me also. I buy quite a lot from them. But the Spanish were also extremely important, and the Spanish people that stayed in New Mexico continued to raise this breed of sheep. So today I use uh, only whole animals. I have the animals taken to the, um, the facility that prepares them for me, and um, I pay the shepherds for the meat, and then I have them processed, and I sell the meat in the restaurant uh, on the menu, lunch and dinner, 365 days a year, because we are in a hotel, so obviously the restaurant is open breakfast, lunch, and dinner every single day. Now, what's the future of the project? I mean, your goal is to increase the population count of this breed, right? It's not just Correct. to serve it yes. at the hotel. Yes. So where do you yes. hope this project is in 50 years? Uh, well, the, the goal originally, Gary and I started out wanting to create a registered breed name or a, a patented commercial name for the Navajo Churro sheep, but that proved to be almost impossible. We couldn't get the the shepherds to collectively raise the animals and bring them to one place and then put a stamp and a name on this particular animal. So that hasn't really happened. I have been successful in building relationships with individuals, shepherds, ranchers, farmers, etc. And right now I'm at the point where I'm able to buy over, between 100 and 150 head of sheep a year. Now these animals come in much smaller than the kind of sheep that you bring in. My my animals come in hanging weight um, in the high 20s to, if I'm lucky, I'll get one at 40 pounds. But some of them, 28 to 40 pounds is about average, mid-low, 30 pounds. So they're small sheep. What I'm hoping to do and what I've started to do for the first time last year and now this year is be able to pass some other animals on to other chefs so that they can start using them. I've also funnel some of the animals through to the um, collective uh, unit in Flagstaff, the uh, um, community-supported agricultural program in Flag, so people have been able to buy the food, that the animals, the meat that way. But I think as, you go, as we go further, I'm hoping that someone will come along and someone will be able to collectively market this meat as a uh, as a commercial product you know just well, like heritage foods does just yes. like you collect and distribute hopefully there'd be someone here that could do the same thing slow food hopefully is going to be working i met richard mccarthy he's a great new executive director that's infused all this positive energy and i know they have their slow meat conference 
coming up in mid-June, and the whole goal is to start local presidia, local economic interventions, little uh, catalysts to start projects like this. Or I shouldn't say start, take it to the new level. But uh, this is absolutely fascinating. I mean, I think you should be on, John, many times uh, and just keep us abreast of the situation and, and there and new menus and new products you bring on because it's such an important uh, bridge that you're building with uh, groups that live specifically there uh, who've been there for thousands of years. Uh, how do people reserve at La Posada? I mean, by the way, this is a totally luxury vacation for people. I mean, they're at the Grand Canyon. It's an immense hotel. It's the type of hotel that you have to leave your room 15 minutes before dinner to get to the dining room. It's that big. Then this powerful train comes roaring through. And I was there with Alice Waters once, and I remember we ran out and jumped onto one of the trains like we were old hobos <laughs> and uh, it just felt great and uh, it is uh, also in Wesno, Arizona and you feel the weight of history there uh, yeah. with all the Native Americans that have uh, hair salons and you know stores right outside um, so and of course Flagstaff and everywhere around there it is a great weekend to just plant yourself there and then you get to take advantage of John's food too so um, how do people log on I mean it's the Torquoise room and laposada.com right we have two websites actually the hotel is laposada.org and that's capital L-A, capital P-O-S-A-D-A, laposada.org. That's for the hotel. And then the restaurant, which is a separate business, is the turquoiseroom.net. But both of those websites will lead you to us. Um, bookings are imperative for the hotel. The hotel, to give you an idea, we run about a 97% occupancy of 53 rooms wow. March through December. Wow. It's an amazing property. It's a very busy property. Uh, it isn't the kind of thing if you're driving around the southwest and you're doing the uh, ultimate loop of uh, Sedona, Grand Canyon, Petrified Forest, Painted Desert, Meteor Crater, Hopi, Four Corners, uh, Monument Valley. If you're doing all of these uh, places as part of your holiday, you must make a booking with us to stay and then uh, have dinner and hopefully breakfast the next morning at the Turquoise Room, and you'll be in for a very memorable experience, as you will remember when you were there with Alice. And uh -huh. Absolutely. We hosted the, uh, the National Conference of Slow Food of the Board of Directors. It was mm -hmm. a very in the early days of the Turquoise Room, so it was quite a memorable experience for me having such an illustrious gang as, uh, as you brought with you that day. Well, that's awesome, and uh, we didn't get to cover it this story, but I want to tell for you to tell us next time you're on about the the tradition of those welcoming ladies who would stand at the, the train. Hobby was, girls, the the hobby hobby girls. girls. Well, we'll save yes. that for a different show, like uh, the Mike okay. and Judy show, or next time you're on my show. But uh, I'd love to learn about the Harvey girls and who is I'll Harvey. I'll tell you all about that, and I'll tell you, you know, have lots more stuff to tell you about food and the kind of food I do and the foods that are grown for me around here at the different farmers markets we have a, a myriad of providers in this region which is actually for the desert when people think of arizona in the desert they would be blown away if they could see the absolute plethora of ingredients that come from this area 
all right well you'll be on for sure uh well we 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 have the luxury of being in touch because of heritage food sometimes you need products so you will be uh at the front foremost part of our radar and uh we will have you back uh, sometime in the summer and we'll cover a whole different set of stories but thanks for your time and uh thanks for listening uh stay tuned we're going to take a very brief break and come back with uh blackberry farm Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. You know, there's no more telling aspect, no more revealing virtue of a group of people having evolved in a lovely way than how they feed themselves, how they entertain, how they put food on the table, what they put on the table. Heritage Radio Network provides the clearest evidence that there's hope for us yet. Heritage Radio is like Fairway Market in that we both care deeply about what you're having for dinner tonight. Heritage Radio Network is not just about food, though. Every time I tune in, I learn something about things other than food, too. Architecture, design, stuff like that. But from where I stand, I still say, if you can't eat it, what's the point? For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. We're back. Wow. A fascinating interview, wasn't that, Jack, with John? Absolutely. He's got a great voice. Anytime English people say anything, it sounds better than an American. I mean, they could be saying the dumbest stuff in the world, but, man, with an English accent, it's just legit. Well, Native American history is pretty oh, cool, man, too. man. What he does there, I mean, he's smacking the... That, well, my friend Renato, Jack, I think you've heard me say this, uh, uh, he, he always said that where the you know ingredients are richer... Like where it's more abundant, like let's say in Costa Rica or something, the cuisine is not as good. But in places that you would never think, like in the desert where they have to squeak out an ounce of sweet syrup out of the cactus, all of a sudden that cuisine is very refined because, you know, they have to put so much effort into it. But um, yeah, it makes sense. Um, yeah, unbelievable what he's doing. Well, from one institution on the in the southwest to another institution in the south southeast kind of south central we are honored uh, to have michael sullivan on with us from blackberry farm hey michael how are you i'm doing great i don't have an english accent but i definitely have a southern one you definitely have uh where everything you say is still smarter than just regular Yankees. So uh, we went from England <laughs> to the South to, to us. But uh, it is a real honor. Uh, we're going to talk all about Blackberry Farm, which is uh, one of the more interesting places in the country, like La Posada. It's definitely a historic site. Um, but uh, just to contextualize it, tell us a little bit about you, Michael. Your first chef, kind of like a mentor, 
uh, was a German-influenced guy, John Mantram. Talk about him and what you mean by German-influenced. So my, my first job as a chef, I actually had zero experience. And I walked into a country club because after doing research, I found out the best chef in the area I was at was a German chef, CIA-trained. Um, and I just basically walked in the door, and I did not give him a choice of hiring me. I pretty much was hard-headed, um, even more than he was, about working there. And his influence was all about butchery, especially the pig butchery, making sausages, and so forth. So learning from him, seeing just the art and craft of butchery, because he was trained in Germany, and the love of those fresh sausages. And we would literally make hundreds of pounds of sausages just for family meal because he wanted to keep the art up. So that was really the biggest influence in my life, watching him in the butchery and making sausages. Very interesting. And then you moved on from him to New York. Where did you work in New York? Um, I went to the CIA, graduated with honors. I worked for Rick Moonen and John George. I did a, a real um, about a year stint in Calistoga at Martini House under Todd Humphreys. Went back to New York and uh, worked for John George again and Gianni Scapini, who, you know, it's kind of immortalized in the book Kitchen Confidentials about teaching him to love pasta. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I came down to Blackberry Farm. So tell us about Blackberry Farm. I mean, this is literally one of the most important and interesting places for culture, pleasure, hotel in the country. Uh, just tell us briefly about the history of it. Well, Blackberry Farm was founded in 1977. It was really by accident um, the owners were trying to raise money for another venture they were doing, and they would invite investors over to their house. Um, she would literally cook from Gourmet Magazine and entertain these possible investors. Well, all of a sudden, these investors started calling back and asking if they can pay to have that service. They wanted to invite some people over for them to be entertained, to stay um, on the farm, and be able to do their guests that way. So Blackberry really happened off of an offshoot. Um, and then about 15 years ago, their son, Sam Bell, he, um, they, they handed the reins over to him and his complete passion for food and wine. I, I mean, what you see of Blackberry today is really the influence of Sam, uh, um, of his travels and so forth. It, it's food-driven uh, and... The artisans there, everything's really about an experience of food and wine and just a lifestyle. Where do you fly into to go to Blackberry Farm? Uh, you fly into Knoxville, and then from Knoxville, you're, you're only about a 25-minute ride away. And then uh, it is a hotel, and it is a restaurant, but it's more, right? I mean, it's a big uh, What's uh, How many acres is it? And uh, it's kind of like a getaway, a resort of sorts, an oasis. It really is. Basically, you're going down the road, and you take this little right-hand turn. And you go down this road for about 3.1 miles. Yes, I've, I've clocked it. It's 3.1 <laughs> miles to the gate of Blackberry. And you don't know where you're at. We don't have any signs, anything, until you come up on the property. And all of a sudden, you come up on this beautiful, amazing property that uh, we're sitting on over 5,000 acres of land. 
that borders the um, Smoky National Park. So basically everything you see is blackberry. And it's just really an amazing resort. We have horseback riding. We have fly fishing. We have a world-class spa. I mean, we have two restaurants. Uh, I mean, we have three full-time master gardeners. You know, we, we have a preservist, a beer maker, a jam maker. To myself, I'm a chicoutier, so, and the butcher and blackberry. And it, it's just really an experience of life. How um, are the two... Uh, in the morning and then go and have the most amazing breakfast you ever have. How are the two restaurants different from one another? So... What we call the main house restaurant is the original restaurant to the property. It's a lot more casual. Um, we do breakfast and lunch. We also do um, picnic lunches. So it, it's a very simple cuisine, uh, but everything is based on fresh ingredients, local as possible. And then in the evening, what we call the barn restaurant, it is um, just a beautiful barn that we, it was actually dates back to the 1700s. We found it in Pennsylvania, and it was a five-year project that we literally took it down board by board and resurrected it at Blackberry Farm. Wow. And we do fine dining there. And um, our chef, Joseph Lynn, actually won the James Beard um, for the Southeast last year. Huh. Well, very interesting. Now, your style of butchery is um, an old style of butchering. So how do you define the new style? And the old style. I mean, what makes it old? And what kind of animals do you go through there on a weekly basis? Um, what I define as old style, I do a lot more of what we call seam butchery. So I mean, my approach to an animal it is I love bringing in whole animals. I love utilizing every part of the animal. And what I mean by old style, uh, people laugh at me. I always tell them, hey, only thing you need is one knife. And I have a six-inch boning knife that I literally will break down the whole animal with. And I do have a cleaver if I need to chine a bone out or anything. So I do a lot of scene butcheries, and how I look at an animal is this. What do I want to do with the animal will tell me how I want to cut the animal. So I don't use saws and cutting them up into square pieces. I really let the animal speak for themselves. And I try to treat the animal and give, you know, the best attention to it. Mm-hmm. So that's really my approach, and whenever I do dry curing, it's the same thing. Everything's very hand-on. I do all hand-mixing. It's really about putting your passion and your love into the art that you're doing and giving respect to the animal. For sure, for sure. Now, uh, unbelievable, besides making sopressadas and Toscanas and cooking for the restaurants, uh, I mean butchering for the restaurants uh, and and cooking from whole carcasses from the farm, you've also found time to be a major player in the Cochon 555 movement. So tell us about your work with them. Yes, in fact, um, I'm speaking to you right outside of the Ritz-Carlton in San Francisco today. So if you hear some cars in the background, that's what you're hearing. And so we're doing an event here in San Francisco. we got an amazing chef lineup. And more importantly is my farmer lineup. So what I do with Kishon, um, right now I, I help run the tour. But my biggest end goal is to find and nurture farms and to create relationships between farms and chefs that have not worked together. And it, nothing thrills me more than whenever I talk to a farmer and they can pinpoint, like, working about relationships and go, hey, I have literally five or six 
customers that buy from me on a weekly basis because you made an introduction for me and that they introduced me to some other chefs. And thank you for making you know, this sustainable for me to be able to raise these kind of animals. Well, that's great. So, so uh, tell us, what is the state in, in, from what you see of the heritage breed movement in the United States? Um, to me, it's really exploding. Um, I, I think one of the most exciting times this year is Colorado. And I say Colorado because for three years I have been searching for pigs in Colorado of a heritage breed line. And I always had to kind of almost go out of the state to find them. This year is the first year I actually found four different farms throughout the state of Colorado that now raise heritage breed pigs. Hmm. And doing it, um, doing it right, all pasture-raised, um, taking care of the animal. Um, one of the farms actually has their own butcher you know, facilities so they can, you know, be able to slaughter and take care of it from, you know, ground up. That is very, very exciting to me. And making it available to chefs. Yes. Well, that and is... Uh... everywhere I go, I just see more and more farms popping, popping up and they're becoming self-sufficient. And that's exciting. No, for sure, for sure. Now, how important, uh, now, what percentage of chefs out there are doing the whole animal thing? I mean, I'm always interested in that because that's a, the best way to cycle through a whole pig is for chefs like yourself who go through the whole animal. Do you see more and more chefs uh, commit themselves to bringing in whole carcasses and finding out a way to cycle through all the cuts? Yes. Yeah, um, the movement has started gaining pay. I think... It basically comes down to the art of butchery is coming back. And chefs are getting fascinated with butchery again. So, and with that being said, they're willing to bring in whole animals. And chefs are also um, realizing, you know, this is a very tight market that, you know, being a restaurant owner, there's, there's a small profit margin. And you have to make as much profit, you know, as you can. And bringing in whole animals does that. Because you're able to cut your costs, but you're able to get so many more products out of it. So yes. the chefs that are really embracing this, not only are they getting so much more dealing with small farms, getting better products into their kitchen, but they're saving money and giving guests a, a taste of things they wouldn't normally be able to taste. And, you know, uh, here's a great example. Um, four years ago, uh, I would call of a farmer, and I can get pretty much any kind of, as many pig heads as you want, because nobody ever wanted a pig head. Now, it's a struggle to find a pig head, because every chef is after all the heads and tails and feet. Things that they used to almost throw away now becomes a, a big demand, and that's very exciting in the food industry. Well, fantastic. So, tell us how people can learn about more. The website to sign up is blackberryfarm.com if you want to taste Michael's food. And if you want to participate around the rest of the country, it's cochon555.com, right? Yes. Well, fantastic. So um, I appreciate you taking some time out of your day to talk to us. Uh, you know, you're definitely uh, doing the right thing. Your heart's in the right place. And I've invented a new word, which I, I keep, I've always wanted credit for inventing a new word. But uh, it's not really a great one. But it's like an actioneer. 
It's a person who makes things happen. And, uh, you know, rather than writing about it or talking about it, there's a certain group of people, merchants, uh, doers, although George Bush has taken the fire out of the word doers. But, you know, actioneers, you're definitely an actioneer and you're fighting the good fight every day. And uh, we have great respect for that. So thanks for giving up some of your time. And uh, we hope to have you on again soon, Michael. Thank you, Patrick, and thank you for everything you do for those small farmers out there. <laughs> I know every farm you work with, and I tell you, you're doing a great job, and thank you for making it possible to give them a livelihood doing what they love to do. So thank you, Patrick, <laughs> for everything. Thanks very much, and uh, I also want to thank John Sharp for being on earlier, the chef of uh, the Turquoise Room at La Posada. And I also want to thank Jack Inslee for condescending, for throwing one back for his homies and coming uh, an engineering uh, and a show of ours. So thanks, Jack. Oh, it's a pleasure. And uh, we got a big week at Heritage Radio. I think there's a new deputy director coming in. There's a new writing team coming in in a couple of weeks that are going to be working with Jack and the team to produce more news coverage about food. So um, exciting times at HRN and hopefully exciting times for the listeners of the main course today. So we will be back uh, next week. We got some great chefs lined up uh, in the following week. So stay with us and we will be back uh, soon. Thank you. for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.